From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the WLAI podcast. I'm Tom Ehrenfeld, your host for the podcast, and I'm joined here today by my excellent producer, John Cotter. And today, rather than do one podcast with one guest, we're going to draw from recordings over the past year. We're taking this occasion to highlight the ideas that we've discussed in the podcasts over the past year. Lean becomes clear to us has an enduring power and relevance to the challenges that we are facing right now and continue to face. And so we're going to go back over a handful of podcasts and share material that ties into this theme. So we're going to start with a conversation we had last year with Dan Jones, a co-author of such lean classics as The Machine That Changed the World and Lean Thinking, and more recently of a lesser known book called Lean Strategy. And what really appeals to me about Dan is his very deep work on keeping lean relevant and understanding the dynamics of this very powerful set of ideas. One of the key things that Dan talked about was framing lean as a strategy, by which he means an overall approach to work. It's less of a mechanistic means of optimizing results and growing the bottom line and much more of a shared mindset of reflection in which people who do the work are asking questions about how to improve the work and being very mindful of using problems as opportunities to learn more with increased profits and higher quality produced as an outcome of this approach as opposed to a first priority? Well, I think Lean has been seen very much as an efficiency improvement uh, tool or system or framework as it applied to the the legacy industries of mass production, the, uh, the big airports, the big hospitals, the big factories, the big warehouses and so on, as I described in that piece. But actually the world is, is changing very, very dramatically. And the one thing that I think is gonna hold us back is not actually the immediacy of climate change, which is going to force us to change our behavior in many different ways. And it's not even really the spread of wealth across the world, which will undoubtedly continue with ups and downs. But what will stop us from doing this is really the the social systems that are going to actually deliver against these challenges. And so I think the key element of the social system that does deliver this is our business system. And the shareholder first business system, in my view, is is no longer credible because it basically ignores the externalities of the operations of the organization. And it ignores the fact that nowadays we have a lot of skilled employees and treating them as hired hands that don't share in the profit from the enterprise doesn't seem to be credible anymore. And so I think it is time to challenge the traditional American business model of make money and anything that makes money for shareholders is good and everything else gets goes by the wayside. 
So I think that's the background to my concern and my thought that Lean does actually offer a very different approach to organizing a business. I've never seen Lean just as a set of tools or a, a way of improving processes. It's actually much more fundamental than that. It's about engaging everybody in doing new things, in learning how to do today's things better, but actually with a view to improving them significantly and rapidly in the future. But Lean is a, is a, a business system that is all about uh, change and learning. And that is actually going to come to the fore in this next era. And so we, as leaders, we have to learn very different ways of learning and very different ways of leading and very different ways of listening to the customers and figuring out actually what the world does want now in the future. So I think Lean provides a business system that links the process side, the people side, and the purpose side together uh, in a different way than the traditional business model of shareholder first business model. Perhaps there's a fourth P that needs to be integrated into that formula for enduring operational change, which would be profits. Shareholder first, owner-driven enterprise can make a play at engaging people, purpose, processes. But I think the, the one leap is that these changes can happen without also disrupting the economic structure, the ownership of the enterprise and the distribution of profits. Well, there's been a lot of discussions in, in America about widening the focus from shareholders. And I think that's welcome. And I think that is leading in the right direction. But I think in the United States, still a, a cultural focus on success being defined as making money. And the business is there to, to make money first and how it does it is sort of inconsequential second order question. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. And I think increasingly the world is going to look for solutions that aren't just big blockbuster solutions that we can replicate across the world, create captive markets for and charge a premium price for, and hence make profits. I'm certainly not advocating that businesses shouldn't make profits, but profits should be the outcome of a very different definition of purpose and a different way of organizing process and a different way of engaging people. So I think it's a false argument to say that we're not going to focus on profit. We are going to focus on profit, but profit is an outcome of doing the right things that society wants businesses to do. So this leads us to my conversation with Dan Heath author of the book Upstream, whose um, storytelling abilities really helped us understand the ever-expanding applicability that Lean has in our lives, especially, say, during a pandemic. Dan's key message is that the most important problems to tackle are the ones that we avoid by thinking upstream, as he puts it. And Dan shared a just great dynamic range of examples to illustrate his point. And one key and recurring theme that he discussed had to do with heroes. We tend to all want to be heroes. 
And yet Dan pointing to a system in which the system itself is heroic and it minimizes or obviates the need for heroes because the most important problems are prevented from happening. Shift gears. Uh, there's a really interesting quote in the book on page 63 that says the need for heroism is usually evidence of system failure. And basically you talk about how thinking upstream kind of obviates the need for heroes. Heroism is kind of anathema to good upstream thinking. Um, can you talk about that? Absolutely. If, if you think about the way we conceive of heroes, our schema of heroes, we're thinking of people who rush in when there's an emergency, you know, the, the firefighters uh, who put out the flames in a burning building or the, the lifeguard who jumps in a pool to, to save the drowning kid or a policeman who come to fight off a, a burglar or whatever. What I want to point out is that an even better kind of hero it's, is someone not that saves the day, but that keeps the day from needing to be saved. And, and we do this weird thing in organizations where we reward um, unnecessary heroism. You know, the, the, the times in organizations when colleagues are staying up all night to finish the critical grant application or to make sure the, the software release cycle goes off. And we always hold these people up. I've, I've had a, a couple of conspiratorial readers uh, email me and say that they've been in organizations where they actually suspected that people kind of created fires on purpose for the sake of being the one that was able to put it out and getting the glory. And so that's what I mean when I say, you know, the need for heroism is often or, or is usually a sign of, of systems failure. Because if you think about, I'll give you a tangible example for this book. I, I didn't end up writing about this, but the YMCA is, is obviously a, a, a hugely prevalent organization nationally. More people swim in YMCA pools than anywhere else. And they've done a lot of work over the years to prevent drownings. And if you think about uh, what that work looks like, it's it's real boring incremental stuff. It's you put the lifeguard's chair a little closer to the pool to ensure that there's no visual blind spots, and you teach them techniques of scanning the pool so that they they scan the entire pool visually every ten seconds, and you make sure they don't have access to their cell phone uh, in the in the lifeguard chair just to make sure there's no distractions, and you rotate them so they don't get bored, just like a TSA agent at the airport, and on and on. And it's these process improvements that make all the difference. And, and then if you ask, well, who's the hero? To me, there are a lot of heroes, but, but none of those people ever got any glory. None of the process consultants, none of the trainers, none of the lifeguards that changed their behavior. I mean, the net effect of all that work is that nothing happens. Yeah. But nothing happening is a wonderful thing. I mean, everybody that's got a child should be delighted that nothing happens. But it's just kind of this, this glory asymmetry that I think is a really interesting wrinkle in thinking about downstream versus upstream work. It's absolutely counterintuitive and it kind of cuts across, across the grain culturally mm -hmm. that we just have a bias to kind of celebrate heroic interventions, heroic individuals. And I should be clear, I mean, look, if my child was drowning in the pool, I mean, I, I, I would be deeply, deeply grateful for the person to come in and save the day. It's not that I'm being dismissive of of the downstream heroes. It's just that what we should aspire to is a society where we need fewer of them, you know, because the systems work the way they were supposed to work.
So this need to avoid heroic interventions was also discussed by Jim Womack, who talked about lean in the time of coronavirus. And he helped dispel the notion that just in time and other lean interventions or lean practices are to be vilified at a time when current practice is insufficient to meet the needs of, say, producing sufficient vaccine in time to inoculate everybody. Yeah, and there is this notion that we somehow or other perhaps are born with, but perhaps we learn it, uh, I don't know, in school or wherever, that if you have heroic leadership and adrenaline, you can actually produce more than you thought you could produce. This is interesting, but it's magical thinking. Okay, it's magical thinking. Uh, one of my favorite examples, of course, is Tesla, uh, where you have the heroic leader who has the sleeping bag and sleeps at the end of the line, and is somehow are they going to encourage or uh, exhort or <laughs> threaten the lads to go faster? But you can't go faster than the equipment will permit, than the materials flow will permit, than your skills will permit. Um, you know, really, it's amazing that uh, we all have this kind of notion that we can, if we have to, just go faster. But, you, you know, you forgot to pack for the trip and the Uber is at the front door. You say, oh, well, this would normally take 10 minutes, but I'll get it done in two, right? And then when you get to Singapore, uh, think about all the things you don't have. So it's, uh, there, there are some constraints there. Uh, it is uh, interesting that uh, they're now talking about their new uh, Shanghai plant. Uh, and that gets us back to the coronavirus and all that. But uh, pointing out that they've been able to ramp it up much more quickly because they're using cheap Chinese labor and much less automation. Okay? And the whole reason they got uh, broken down at Fremont to begin with was that they were trying to heroically automate final assembly, which people have looked at for 50 years, and there's been a little bit of progress, but it turns out it's really, really hard. So uh, the premise there was with the heroic leader we will just find a way to do what no one else has been able to find a way to do. Interesting idea, but magical thinking. Okay, so actually Fremont got a whole lot better when they ripped out uh, all of the automated stuff that they couldn't get to run. Okay, so that's all right, but what I'm saying is that heroic leadership, and now let's go back to the Starbucks. Suppose that you had this heroic team leader who says, folks, we, our maximum capacity would appear to be 100 cups of coffee an hour or whatever. But we're going to shift into ludicrous that's, mode. We're going to, that's right. <laughs> we're going to go to ludicrous mode and we'll make 200. Well, wait a minute. The coffee making equipment can't make it. The hands can't move fast enough. Right. So forth. Um, there are, uh, in real life, whether you're lean or you're not lean, there are constraints. And so that, uh, actually, I think the, the brilliant thing about steady work uh, is that it showed they knew what their capacity was. Okay. And in trying to surge to create so much more capacity, they were realistic and said, you know, we could make a little bit more up to X, but we can't make more than that. And so if we want to do more than that, then we have to get other Starbucks stores to chip in and start adding their capacity or whatever, right? And so the most powerful response was based on a kind of a thorough self-assessment, an understanding of what they were able to do mm -hmm. and to do well. That's right. We'll be right back after a few words about an upcoming LAI event, the Virtual Lean Learning Experience. 
Join hundreds of your lean thinking peers online at the second annual virtual lean learning experience, where you'll get actionable ideas and inspiration that will re-energize your lean journey. Featuring a new money-saving, flexible pricing plan, a VLX Enterprise subscription gives you and everyone in your organization a new week-long live seminar each quarter plus 12 months of access to the growing archive of recorded seminars. Each seminar will feature at least six presentations from successful lean practitioners who are leading their industries. Learn more and register at lean.org VLX. That's lean.org VLX. And in speaking with Karen Gaudet, a senior LAI person and author of the lovely book, Steady Work, Karen helped us better understand how building a system that produces high quality outcomes is, um, it's a function of a patient approach to sharing a knowledge of standard work and having a humble attitude as a boss when supporting people in um, working on this excellent work. Setting the bar for the standard might keep expectations high, but Karen explained just how widely applicable the standardization is from baristas to manufacturers. Can you elaborate on just, again, this notion standardization can set you free? Because I think that a lot of folks view the notion of standard work as something that's a constraint and a limitation and a, a kind of narrow way of directing people to do work. And can you explain why it's not that? So in our situation at the time, clearly we felt the same thing in different ways going in where the work of being a barista is very artistic, highly creative. And most of what gets done is the expression of basically the love for the customer and the product that you're delivering for that customer. And so we too struggled with trying to understand how standardizing or coming up with common work routines wouldn't hamper that. Mm -hmm. um, and what we came to actually experience as we practiced was that the routine or standardization of the common tasks that existed inside of making a latte or assembling a latte or any other type of product, that's not really where the artisanal pieces come in and that the expression of um, innovation and creativity actually comes from having a baseline that we're all common around and then solving the problems based on what's happening that actually then allows you to express that creativity and the innovative spirit in trying to solve problems in a very creative way. And in the example of being a barista, engaging with a customer right there on the front line, the standardization and routine approach enabled them to engage with the customers on a level that that we didn't quite fully realize before that period of time because the work, certain parts of the work became routine. They were able to actually lift their heads up and engage with the customer in ways that became much more personalized versus looking down, grappling with the stress that can be created because of the waste that exists inside the work prior to that period of time. So the standard work helped identify the best way to accomplish a series of tasks and make that kind of 
routine, the baseline. For sure. Yes, absolutely. And that had a kind of liberating effect by freeing people from having to think about how to do it that way every time and focus, I guess, get in the habit of doing the best way every time, freeing them absolutely. To, to be with yeah. the customer more. Absolutely. And uh, one of the other nuances that exists in the business is that there's often uh, sharing of baristas from one cafe to the next cafe and or you're you know consistently bringing in uh, newer team members and so this standardization also played out in that aspect in which um, you could bring on new team members and or trade from one cafe to the next cafe and create the same level of customer experience because you could be productive very quickly in how that work was done and kind of apply that creativity to the customer experience through the dialogue with the customer not trying to figure out how to get the work done that time. And it also seems to play a, a key role in continuous improvement in that you establish the best way as common practice and then you, I guess, invite or engage the t people doing the work in finding ways to raise that standard work. Did that happen? Absolutely. It lent itself to the ability to improve on the quality of the beverage so whether it's how to steam milk or even the development of new beverages so flat white and others right so it it opens up your ability to think about creative problem solving right. if you're problem solving off a standard and or to drive a standard to the next level Looking over all of these speakers and others who contributed to the podcast last year, we can start to think about how we keep lean relevant. Common element has been that the ideas of lean have just as much, if not more, power and relevance than ever. And yet the common and, and almost existential challenge for lean has to do with finding a way to sustain the gains that companies have made and learning how to teach it to new companies in a dynamic way that they adopt and improve it themselves. The long-term success of companies like Danaher, Fortive, Herman Miller, Parker Hannafin, and of course our exemplar, Toyota, have all validated the power of lean thinking in practice. But if that's the case, why aren't there more exemplars? Why do so many companies either intentionally misconstrue lean or fail to realize its full promise over time. It's a human challenge to be sure. And companies that flatline while attempting to be lean have many causes for it. And to further explore this topic, I had the privilege of talking with three just huge names in the field. Jim Womack, who mentioned earlier, Art Byrne, um, author of a couple books and leader of more than 30 lean turnarounds himself, and Mark Deluzio, who has written a new book titled Flatlining that addresses this very topic. And the three of them each had just very wonderful and uh, trenchant insights into this challenge and its uh, causes and potential countermeasures. And finally, there's just this great 
uh, wealth of experience that you use. You talk a lot about Jake Brake and Danaher. And um, I guess the question is, I'm going to just skip ahead. Like, wh why is there such a gap today? And I'm going to ask that first of you, Mark, but we've been introduced to a lot of the big ideas of lean. All three of you have written fantastic books. So what's the gap um, and what's standing in the way of closing it? And, and I'm talking about like having the promise of lean more fully realized. You know, I think I agree with, with, with everything that, that Mark said. Um, and my own experience is sort of the same thing, which is when, when mo most companies look at lean as a cost reduction tool, they just want a cost reduction. That's basically what they want. And they've come up to where they are in a traditional way. And so changing things that's got them there, pretty hard to do. And I know my own experience when I tell people, look, if you really want to do lean, everything has to change. You have to think about sales and marketing. And they look at you and say, sales and marketing, that doesn't got anything to do with lean. And I say, well, look, you know, if you're shipping 50% of your orders in the last week of the month, sales and marketing has a whole lot to do with lean because you, you got to change that. You can't have level loading and one piece flow and all the things that we're trying to do with lean and still think you're going to ship 50% of your sales in the last week of the month. It's never going to happen. And I think the other thing that, you know, if I go back to our early Danaher days, um, you know, one of the things that we learned early on, in fact, the first Kaizen event that we had with Shin Jiu Jitsu, um, we took a plant tour. This was in Clemson, South Carolina. It was Jacob, Jake Brake's sister company, Jacob's Chuck. And we said, well, well, we'll introduce them to the factory. We'll take them on an hour and a half tour. We got about a hundred yards into the factory. They held up their hands and they said, we've seen enough. Let's go back. Went back into the conference room and Mr. Awada gets up on the board and in huge letters. He writes, no good. And then he turns around and he looks at us and he says, look, everything here is no good. What do you want to do about it? Now, I would say that for 95, 98% of all companies, if a consultant came in and in two minutes told you that everything here was no good, he would have a fight on his hands. The, 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 you know, the management would say, no, wait a minute, you can't say that. You can't walk in here and say that to us. Um, so they'd push back on it. And in our case, we said, okay, we agree. Show us how to fix it. And I think that's a huge difference that you have to overcome the mentality of, of what you have. And when you get really right down to it, lean is not a cost reduction program, it's a strategy. And it's really kind of a cultural mentality of how you look at the business. How, how does management look at the business? What are you trying to do? And if what you're trying to do is be the best supplier and look at it from a strategic point of view, then you have at least a shot at this stuff. Because the difference is, for example, you know, if the three of us went into any kind of company, what we see and what the existing management sees are completely different. They're just not the same thing at all. And the way that they think is completely different. They've, they've what I say, they've taken their value adding for granted for a long time. In other words, if they have a six week lead time, they've accepted the fact that that can't be changed. And when you talk about what leads to a six week lead time and they'll say, well, our setup times are two to three hours. 
And they've really accepted the fact that that can't change because all their operators and all their functional leaders tell them there's no way you can reduce the setup beyond two or three hours. So once you get locked in on that, the only strategy that you have is to try and make your customers conform to your six week lead time. So all these things are enormous hurdles. Mm -hmm. And you know we, we were able to solve them at Danaher just because we, we looked at it differently. We, you know, we had to do something different and we looked at it differently. We saw Lean as a strategy right away. We, we never saw it as a cost reduction program, even though we got huge cost reduction. That, that wasn't why we were doing it at all. It had nothing to do with it. Mm. Uh, Jim, any, any thoughts? Well, I think the, the problem we've all been dealing with is the a lack of Art Burns and lack of Mark Luzio's problem, okay? Uh, and I take it the right way, guys, but you're pretty weird. Uh, and I don't know why, why you're so screwed up, but uh, you're pretty weird, okay? And it's very constructively, positively good for civilization weird, but uh, you're outliers. So as Lean came along after, uh, let's say 1990, that uh, the Jake break uh, start, I think was 87, Right. Uh, by the early 90s, uh, and we helped a little bit with MIT with the machine book, uh, there suddenly was a, a big desire to uh, get some lean. I'd like to uh, buy some lean, please. And I've got the scale here, and I've got my scoop, and I'm going to scoop out of your bucket uh, some lean and put it on my scale. And then we'll talk about a price per pound. And also, we'll talk about payback, because uh, we're hard-headed businessmen, and so we want to get paid back. And so the consulting world sort of uh, responded to the customer's uh, want rather than the customer's need. Because in fact, and look, I, I don't, uh, I've got no bad things to say about anybody. Uh, the customer did not want uh, what they needed. So you said, gee, we're not really gonna do the heavy lifting. And so the thing we got into uh, was that we would do uh, Kaizen activities that would always produce in the short term a spectacular result and then we had kind of this hope that if you did enough kaizen somehow or other uh, everything would become aligned and lean and that was the part that was a uh, hey that it was that a crazy hypothesis uh hey i don't know it's an experiment run an experiment but uh the hypothesis fairly quickly got rejected and that left us sort of back-footed with regard to what do you do? Yeah. And uh, we had actually created a sort of expectation that all there was to lean was just uh, doing five-day Kaizans plus some 5S. And so uh, that uh, was the problem, that is the problem, okay? And that's a long-term uh, problem that we don't have enough arts and marks and we got way too many guys who went to business schools and learned how to do functional analysis and uh, listen to Michael Porter about how to be competitive, which is by avoiding competition. And, you know, so we get the, the, the mess we got. But um, not all is uh, lost. I mean, I think the, the challenge for us right now is to think through uh, what options we might have going forward. All of which bring us to a very exciting conversation that was had between Josh Howell of LAI, Matt Savis, RJ Scringe, who is the CEO of Rivian, and Jim Morgan, who is currently a senior person at LAI. 
and at the time was uh, an executive supporting Rivian. These individuals explored what went into making, if I, if I may, fueling the success of Rivian, which is one of the more exciting electric vehicle companies out there. Conceived as a project by RJ back when he was a student at MIT, and he knew Womack way back then, it's now one of the most viable competitors to other entries in this EV field. It has successfully raised an enormous amount of money. It has secured large purchases from Amazon. And tying back to the theme of heroism, it's done a stellar job of incorporating many of the lean product and process developments that Jim Morgan has so eloquently advocated for years by developing a, a Rivian production system that anticipates problems, uh, creates steady work, and is very resilient and able to tackle emerging problems as they arise. It's a great conversation about lean as applied to a, a large startup in a vital field. Enjoy. Yeah, the organization is, is actually the most important product we have. We could create a great first product, but if there's not an organization that's robust and built upon solid foundation sitting behind it, the second, the third, the fourth product, so to speak, uh, won't be there. And so that we're very cognizant of that, and that's something um, Jim is, is a huge advocate for and uh, has really helped us think about that as well, is the organization as a product. So I think one of the things that is really exciting about Rivian is that um, as we're, we're walking around, I explained that we're not differentiating between roles in the company, uh, types of employees, mm. whether it's uh, you know software, or whether it's the battery labs, or whether it's here, the Plymouth Development Center, or at the plant. Um, the facility looks very mm. similar. Uh, we put just as much care into the offices at the plant as we do anyplace else. We work hard to have the same um, you know, operating rules uh, in each of the facilities. Um, we really um, strive to make it almost invisible sort of where you are once you get inside the facility, if that makes sense. Um, and the way that we um, engage with the rest of the team is the same. Mm -hmm. irrespective of what location we're at or what your particular job function is um, you know whether that's RJ uh, talking to everybody I mean people at Rivian um, all sort of value their personal relationship with RJ um, and I've you know I've seen a lot where he um, you know interacts with people identically regardless of where they're at so um, in terms of the manufacturing facility itself um, it, the same feel, the same culture, the same look uh, is there as is in each of the facilities. Yeah, and I think it gets back to making sure we maintain that consistent philosophy uh, of how we treat people and how we, you know, those behavioral philosophies. Um, so of course the tactics are going to be different. So some of the, some of the, some of the, the, the details of how we run the plant and, and how the workforce interacts with, you know, the course of their day versus how somebody in, let's say, the marketing team might, might their day may look, are going to be very different. Um, but we come from the same belief system. And 
Awesome. You, know, you asked the question of uh, what what what's the process look like at the plant where we're bringing a workforce in that had in, in a large part previously worked in this facility with different philosophies and different different operating processes. Um, I actually look at that as a huge strength, uh, and a lot of it is for us. It's it, we're, we're we're lucky. This is a facility that was commissioned in the late '80s. First model year was 1990, so it's a it's a relatively new facility, particularly in the world of brownfield automotive plants. It's it's one of the newest in the world um, that we could have acquired. And the workforce that's there, many of them, their first job out of college or out of high school uh, was in this plant. And imagine coming to this facility in its in its beginning days and helping either build it, launch it, or, or run it in those early years, and then being part of the process of, of being in that facility for 20, 25 years, and then having to shut it down. And, you know, when you're you know, mid-career, uh, and now the opportunity to relaunch that facility, and the energy and the excitement that comes from being part of, of that relaunch and what that means for the community, it's not something that you could actually buy, that kind of commitment. And you see it in the workforce, you see it in the, the teams. Um, there's one of the things, frankly, I'm most excited about with the facility is actually the team that we're building there. It's, it's Of course, the facility is going to be amazing, um, but ultimately it's about the people and, and the operating uh, philosophies and the operating behaviors we set up there. And to have as a backdrop the energy and the passion that <clears throat> people aren't paying attention to whether they're you know, five minutes early, five minutes late, but rather how do I get my job done the, the best of possible ways. It's, again, you can't, you can't buy that. Thank you for joining us and be sure to join us next month on March 22nd when the WLAI podcast features Thomas Weddle Weddlesburg, who has a new book called What's Your Problem? in which he discusses creative and powerful ways to frame your most pressing problems and move them forward. Thank you.